0: Our silence keeps the status quo in place. When we're silent, we're not examining our relationship with money. We're not, we can stay in our bubble and be unaware and not hold ourselves accountable. And when there is this population of people who aren't talking to each other, who are isolated and estranged, they're probably not at their most generous or empathetic
1: inform inspire and evolve welcome to creating community for good a podcast dedicated to philanthropy the love of humankind join host lindsay simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community positivity and energy to the business of generosity welcome your host lindsay simons Hi, this is Lindsay Simons, your host of the Creating Community for Good podcast. In a heightened time of tension where words matter so much that they arguably played a critical role in the presidential election in America, it has been proven that it is important to speak with purpose, not impulse. I don't know about you, but the past few weeks and months have been riddled with hard conversations talking about disparity, health, human rights, character, social justice. Oh, and a bit of politics too. It's been informative and it's also been exhausting. Now, consider that you're a high net wealth individual or aka a rich person in air quotes. The spotlight has been turned on and begs the question, is it even okay to be wealthy? Should the wealthy be talking about their wealth? I mean, really talking about it. Where did it come from? Where should it go? And... Furthermore, what does it feel like to have that level of benefit in society? Have you ever considered what responsibility is imposed on the wealthy or what it's like to be in their shoes? In my opinion, the bandwagon and rallying rhetoric of disapproval and shame of the wealth and privilege is not helpful. Why must we shame the wealthy and pity the poor? These are human beings we're talking about. I'm not sure that anyone wants shame or pity attributed to them based merely on the invisible dollar sign over their head. Furthermore, I don't think that we should give money so much power that it becomes one's identity. Let's have a real conversation and take the stigma out of wealth. Today's episode of Creating Community for Good presents a fair and dynamic conversation for all, regardless of your interest in my industry of fundraising or nonprofits. This is one that anybody can listen to if you've ever considered success or dare I say identity as it relates to money. It's also a good one for someone who holds resentment or jealousy about others regarding their resources. As a sidebar, I want to recommend that during these times of stress, grief, and celebration, you spend time going inward and being still, meditate, or having meaningful conversation with yourself in order to have purposeful and kind conversations with others. I'm a lover of yoga, as many of you know. And during COVID, I've spent many months running outside instead of being in the same four walls of my apartment in San Francisco doing yoga. So now that It's the fall and the season is changing. I finally started coming back to the mat and going inward. And I can't tell you how that's changed my perspective and sense of calm during these really wild times in our country the most essential quality of yoga is balance of effort and ease. So this conversation might strike a chord with some of you about wealth, and you may or may not agree with some of the points that are made. That's why I've made the sidebar comment about going inward and talking to yourself, meditating, doing whatever it takes for you to find your sense of equanimity. Now, that sidebar aside, let's come back to the conversation at hand. Today, we'll talk about wealth from the perspective of a wealthy woman who has deeply researched inside and out the human experience of inequity. Her mission is to create equity through demystifying and disempowering the essence of money by holding meaningful conversations. Allow me to introduce to you Jen Risher, the author of We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth and the initiator of the social movement, along with her husband, David, to give, called Half My Daff. Jen's story is pretty typical at West. When Jen got a job offer to be a campus recruiter at Microsoft in 1991, she had no idea how much good fortune was heading her way. She was 25 years old. The company was booming and its employees were young, ambitious, and out to change the world. Her starting salary was $26,000, which was a big jump from the $19,500 she'd been making as an account coordinator in advertising. Six years later, her boyfriend from Microsoft, who later became her husband, David, left Microsoft to join a small, unknown startup called Amazon. When that company went public, their fortune became even more unfathomable. Suddenly, they had tens of millions of dollars, all before the age of 35. She's a woman who's deeply reflective and has a lot to share in this episode. If you're wondering if I'll ever get to the episode, rest assured, I will. When I press play in a few seconds, you'll dive right into our conversation, in fact. Jen and I had been chatting about pros and cons of giving circles when I decided that there was some good stuff in what we were saying. So I hit the record button midway through. What's interesting about it to me was that we're talking about power dynamics of donors and beneficiaries. Then we'll move straight into donor-advised funds and why she created Half My DAF, And then her book. So why she wrote this book about wealth and having a conversation. We talk about the taboos. We talk about the power we give it. We talk about the emotions, her views on philanthropy, the word legacy, and mission-centric work. Much more please take a look at my show notes as well. If you usually just listen, then that's fine also. But I encourage you to take a look at the podcast app where you're listening or just jump onto my website, www.creatingcommunity.com for good.com. As I add a lot of reflections and resources in the show notes, you'll see great links to either, you know, the episodes, books or resources that I've used as research. And then in this episode, I'm going to share a link to a really cool retreat center that my cousins are hosting in Maine, as well as a yoga teacher that I wanted to highlight just for a sense of balance and equanimity. Okay, okay, enough of the longest prelude ever. Here we go.
0: I love the idea of people sitting around talking about giving, yeah, but I think we can we can do better. We can talk about giving in, in a more meaningful way and really challenge each other and hold ourselves accountable and I feel like the circle with us, the donors, and them, the nonprofits, it doesn't set up a good dynamic where. I love the idea of uh, if you're going to sit around with a glass of wine and talk about philanthropy, let's challenge each other to give more. Let's, let's talk about the specifics that we're giving, why we're giving. Let's really have a conversation, a real conversation. Yes. That'll serve the social appetite and you know, connection appetite that we all have and want. But bringing in a, a nonprofit and kind of forcing them through all these hoops is, is maybe not the best way to kind of get that piece met.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think it speaks to the power dynamics that America is really trying to disrupt, too, with, you know, the haves and have nots. And are we constantly asking people to dance for our applause and our money? I mean, that's a terrible image, but that is another concept that I could see at play in this sort of dynamic. What do you think about donor advised funds? Because I know with your Half My DAF, there's also the other side of donor advised funds that is a drawback is that it really creates anonymity for the donor and it can separate the relationship between the donor and the nonprofit. What are your thoughts on that dynamic?
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts now on donor advised funds. In general, I think they're a great tool. I mean, they were set up as a tool so that you can, you know, put your money in and get that tax break. And then you have it kind of as an organizing tool so you can kind of give over time and figure out what you want to do. So it's theoretically a great tool for people. But the biggest problem, I think, is the money gets stuck in the daft and people aren't giving it out. And that you ask about the anonymity. I think that often happens where donors don't understand that that's happening. Mm-hmm. But we talk, we've talked to a lot of nonprofits and say, yeah, we get this check from Fidelity or Schwab or whatever, and we don't know who that donor is. And that's the worst thing for a nonprofit. They get a, a nice gift and they can't thank the person. They can't build a relationship with that person. I mean, that's a real problem. And as a donor, as a person who opens the DAF, you're supposed to like, you can put your name there. And I think most people, I mean, from our mini research, it's like most people put their name on the check. And as I think they should, because we should all be kind of more open with kind of our giving, not as a way to necessarily as a way to kind of show that we're giving, but to start that conversation and make sure that we're out there with what we're doing and what we care about that is a problem with donor advised funds with nonprofits not connecting the dots and who's giving.
1: Yeah. Do you find that the donor advised funds advisors are giving you that strategic feedback and guidance? No. That's the problem. I mean so the donor
0: advised fund sponsors, the, I mean there's those three big national guys, the Fidelity, Schwab and Vanguard and then there's there's over 700,000 donor advised funds across the country. It's, it's a it's, lot. <laughs> grown a lot. There's a lot. And, and, and the number that, I mean, it used to be, oh, for the very wealthy, that donor advice funds were kind of, you had to give a certain amount. And now you can open a donor advice fund with just $5,000, which is still money that you're going to give away. So that's something, but it's, it's an easier entry point. And people are opening them, but then there's no one that's pushing that money through. So the financial advisor is not saying, "Oh, you know, you should start giving." No one's doing that.
1: Nobody's reminding you and pinging you. Oh, interesting.
0: No, and, and what we've found is that people are either just busy; their life continues, and they're you know they've kind of forgotten they even have money sitting in a donor advised fund, <laughs> or they have a you know long term strategic plan. They're giving and they're giving thoughtfully over the course of three years or whatever, or 10 years, or they're just kind of holding on to it. There's some sort of, even though the money is no longer theirs, it's technically needs to be given to a nonprofit. They still have control over it and kind of letting go of that control. It's very human and no one's, no one's kind of pointing to it and saying, yeah, let's move that money through. And maybe this is a time where I should just briefly mention the half my daft challenge. Yeah. And why I know so much about DAFs and have been learning a ton about DAFs. Please do. So donor advice funds are, you know, it's like I think of them and like a charitable checking account. There is the money in the donor advice fund. And like I said, there are there are many across the country and people aren't moving the money through. And there's over a hundred and twenty billion dollars stuck in donor advised
1: funds. Just sitting. Just sitting.
0: It's sitting there because of inertia or all these other things I describe yeah. and, and it's, and people aren't aware of it. And my husband, and I wanted to raise awareness around that, but also, I mean, the reason we started Half My Daff is because COVID hit and there was so much need and, you know, the nonprofits were desperate. They're, the need is greater. They're working harder than ever. They're pivoting to be online and figure things out and there's no funding coming in. They can't hold their luncheons. They can't hold their galas. They can't, you know, raise money the way they normally do. And my husband and I were just like, we need to start giving more to all sorts of nonprofits. And we wanted to do that. And we wanted to inspire, encourage other people to do the same. So we kind of connected this idea of helping move, being the nudge that the financial advisors aren't paying, to move that money out of donor advised funds and to the people who are putting that money to work, nonprofits. So we offered up a million dollars in the form of matching grants and inspired people. And it, technically, it, it was a huge success from May 5th to the end of September. We moved $8.6 million to nonprofits. Yeah in five months.
1: That's awesome.
0: And so that's a success, but even better to me is the community it started to build because we did webinars for nonprofits, educating them about donors and donor advised funds. And we talked to donors themselves who were thanking us for the nudge. Like thank you for get you know, Mm -hmm. raising our awareness around this and, and helping us, inspiring us to start giving people saying, you know, I'm sitting around the dinner table with my adult kids because they're home, we're all sheltering in place. And we're talking about money in ways that we hadn't ever before talking about where should we give? What are our values? So I love that the conversation has started around giving.
1: Yeah, I love that too. And I think that it's so important for us to get into all the topics that are taboo or unconventional or hard and awkward. I loved the reason we're talking, Jen, is because of your beautiful book that was just released. And I've now read, it's called We Need to Talk. And it's all about breaking down those silos of wealth and opening up the conversation, simulating conversation. I found that during the social injustice and unrest that are world is facing, it's hard to have conversations about things that you don't feel are universally acceptable or easy to talk about. And you challenge the reader with conversations at the end of every chapter, questions about, you know, here's a question to ask yourself or talk to your family about or ask your friend. What would you say is like the hardest conversation around money? Like what topic is it that's the most taboo or challenging to begin with?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, kinda of the more I've talked about money, the more I realize that it's not money that we don't talk about. It's the emotions that we feel around money. Money is a very emotional thing. It it brings up a lot. It's very charged. All of us sort of have money shame and money guilt. And we have a money story that sort of starts in childhood. So we kind of learn about money and whether it, you know, all the I mean, and it can be so varied depending on how your parents, their attitude towards money. Yeah. So I I think, you know, the emotions that come up are are pretty universal. I mean, it's fear. We're afraid of hurting other people's feelings, or we're afraid of rejection. Mm -hmm. We're afraid of not measuring up or sounding unknowledgeable. So we kind of avoid the emotions that come up with money. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about kind of how do we encourage people because it is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I want to invite people to get uncomfortable and, and have these conversations Yeah, because on the other side, once you do connect, you find a new sense of connection. There's a sense of relief. There's a way to learn. And I think, you know, it, it's either, you know, you have this awkward money moment where something comes up and you're like, you just yeah. avoid it. Or there's a lot of things that, you know, kind of hang over your head. Like there's ongoing money issues that you have with a parent or with your friend or, I mean, it could be, you have a friend who always wants to go out to a really expensive restaurant that you can't really afford. Or your parent says to you, you're going on vacation again. Can you afford that? Yeah. Or your in-laws are giving to your spouse's brothers and sisters, but they're not giving to you. Mm-hmm. Or your daughter wants to buy an expensive handbag that you know doesn't fit her budget or your values. Or if you go out with another couple, and they're always talking about all the stuff they're buying. Yeah. So all these are issues that come up, and we just kind of veer away from them. But I have five steps, I think, can help us have those conversations. Okay, tell us the five steps. Well, I think first is admit that it's an emotional thing that comes up for you. So let's say it's that friend who, you know, wants to go to the fancy restaurant all the time. And you're like, so what do I really feel about that? Am I resentful? Am I worried that the friendship's going to end if I don't go? Or actually, huh, I feel ashamed. I'm ashamed that I can't afford that. You know, I have a good job. I'm doing well at my my work and I, I should be able to afford this. I'm ashamed that I can't. Mm. So you figure that out and you realize, okay, so that's the issue. I'm going to be vulnerable. I want to talk about this. So you set up a time, step two, set up a time that's, you know, emotionally neutral and give each other time. So set up that time. And then three, at the beginning of the conversation, I think this is really important. Acknowledge that it's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. that you're about to have a, an uncomfortable Conversation. Give each other permission to fumble around, to say things wrong, to get messy, to, to not do it right, and and just in in acknowledging that, I think it builds a little bit of a safe space for you to have a conversation, or give each other time. Each of you gets to speak for five minutes uninterrupted, and then you explain. You know, I realize that I feel really ashamed that I can't afford. I wish I could go out. I should be able to, I'm 35. I should be able to do that. You know, explain how you feel. And then you know what, who knows what, what your friend might be feeling. This might be opening a door for them. Maybe your friend is like, oh my gosh, I have so much student debt. My rent is really expensive. I really can't afford it either. I'm, I'm, I'm going in debt. I I'm so glad you brought this up. Or maybe they're like, oh, I had no idea let's go somewhere else or let me pay this time or who knows. I think we tend to tell ourselves stories and kind of make assumptions until we really confront what's going on. How are we going to move through it? And I think on that other side, it's then you, then you can thank your friend. You can feel the gratitude and you, I hope, and I believe that you'll
1: feel more connected to that person. Jen, I love that. Thank you for walking through those five steps. Those remind (laughs) me of I've done training on nonviolent communication and conflict resolution and like couples counseling. And it seems like it's that really simple formula, but the people just don't engage in. So I'm glad that you walked through those five steps and how to embrace that way of thinking of naming it, setting aside time, opening up and having a safe space for vulnerability, and just holding that space there and bringing that to the conversation of money. I just really appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that wisdom with me and with anybody who's listening. Yes. I like it.
0: Yeah. You know, I just think, you know, when we don't talk about something, it tends to loom large totally. and take on a life of its own. And when we don't talk about money, we are giving it so much power. Yeah. Let's take the power back and put money in its
1: place. Yeah. I love that. I love it. And it's like, <laughs> as you say that, I'm like, this is so doable. How come I didn't think of that? I can totally do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can do it. Try it. The reason I wrote the book is to share my story because I think when we hear other people's stories, we can understand our own better. And so if we shared money stories with each other, I think we'd realize, oh, we're not the only one that overspends or, or whatever it is, is you're, whatever you're, you're worried about. It's like you'll realize, okay, it's okay. That other person probably feels the same way. We have a lot more in common. Than we think.
1: Yes, exactly. And our society pushes us to spend, overspend and spend and spend some more, some yep. more and just True. be more consumeristic, the better. And so I think that's something that any group of people can relate to. And I appreciate that. I like what you said about just like putting money in its place and taking out the power, the charge behind it by just naming it and just, it deflates, it, it comes out, you just name it. So you've got me thinking about high value conversations and relationships as you were talking about earlier with nonprofit organizations as a philanthropist. So if you're a philanthropist and you've engaged with a nonprofit, you know that are many nonprofits, you know that some fundraisers form totally different relationships with you than others and some are just very skilled and talented at relationship management and others are more transactional. Have you had any time to reflect on what kind of questions have you been asked or what kind of conversations have you had with fundraisers that feel like they're truly best practice and high value that you want to highlight? You know, I think
0: the key is relationships and each of us treating each other like people because that's what we are. And starting there, I mean, I think... What's the best conversation to have? It's really, I remember early on when I was just first giving, I went to a nonprofit that ran the mother's group that I was involved in when my first daughter was born. And she invited me to just join her for a cup of coffee. And we spent an hour just talking. She didn't bring up the nonprofit. We just got to know each other as people. And looking back at that, I think that's it. That's really so key for any fundraiser is to really understand who you're talking to and what they care about and finding that common ground, because that's such a key piece of that relationship that you're going to have or not have. I mean, maybe you realize, okay, this person really doesn't have an interest in my area, or maybe they do, or it's finding those common grounds. The common ground is really important, I think.
1: I want to go deeper on that because I've had a couple of philanthropists that have shared with me their experience where they have... I've got two people in mind right now where they've both said something very similar, which is, I'm confused about how this relationship is being managed. It seems like the fundraiser, the executive director, whoever is representing the org, they're trying to act like they're my friend. But I don't think at the end of the day, they're actually looking for a new friendship. And I can't tell what they're trying to achieve here. And it feels like it's false or confusing for me. One of them was new to the town. And she said she wanted to get involved with philanthropy because it was part of her priorities. And it was a good way to meet other like-minded people and to get involved. And so she mentioned this to the development director and that development director took her on hikes and coffees and Then she was, you know, she was very confused about what dynamic was at play here and if there was actually an ask to come and there was, and there was, you know, there was a rupture point that I won't go into, but it was an awkward and uncomfortable situation. For another friend, she said, you know, this person always calls and asks about my son. And I'm like, you don't know my son and you don't care about my son. Why are you asking about him? So she felt defensive. The first one felt confused. The second one felt defensive. And what you're saying is, I loved it because I sat down and had a conversation and got to know somebody and they got to know me. So how do you think is the best way to tee it up so that you're... As the philanthropist, you don't feel confused. So this is a recommendation for fundraisers who are listening. It's what's the best way to approach potential new donor to get to know them, but to not be misleading.
0: Yeah, I can appreciate both those scenarios, and I think you know, the confusing scenario, and then you know, feeling like you don't really care about me. I think that what comes to mind is authenticity. Yeah, you can tell if someone is being authentic or not, and. So that to me says, yeah, that fundraiser is not doing a good job. Everyone is different. So I just can speak for myself and I can speak for that time when I really was very new and I was a lot younger than this woman and having that coffee really was helpful to me. And it was what I wanted and needed at the time. I don't quite remember the the sequence of events, but I think she then asked for a certain amount of money and, and it just kind of felt natural to me at the time. Yeah. Since then, you know, there I have different relationships with different organizations and sometimes I don't want to <laughs> meet I don't want to even hear about what's going on. I just want to write a check. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that happens. Other times I've gotten involved. Like I've been for Girls on the Run. I was a coach for the girls and I was on the board at an arts organization that I'm involved in. I mean, it just depends on my interests and my leanings. I mean, I think Fundraisers need to think about, I think it's a fair question to ask a potential donor, like whether you're fundraising goals, what do you care about? Yeah. What are you asking the real questions? I love that. And, you know, I, I'm still trying to answer your first question about in those two cases, I just think it was a matter of authenticity or really getting clear on the part of the fundraiser. For what you want. Like it is unfair to string someone along and with an ulterior motive, right? And as a person, you can feel that and that doesn't feel good. Yeah. And sometimes you'd want to have a boundary. You don't want to be best friends with the development director, but you care about their organization. And that's a little bit onus is on the donor in that case. But either way, I think it's, it's a relationship that needs to be kind of worked out and each one is different. And I think approaching each relationship is okay this is a different person than the last person I just talked to yeah Yeah, that's important too
1: I want to try something out on you and let me know how this feels can we do that okay role play (laughs) okay (laughs) okay so it might be something like hey Jen I'm super excited about the work that I'm doing I'm a board member at this organization and we've got really big visions and dreams and I'm pumped about it. I'd like to talk to you about it and see if you're interested too and if you'd ultimately be willing to support it. Do you have time for that? Well,
0: I'd want to know what the organization is. Yeah, I think that's totally fair.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've got lots of organizations I love, but this is just like a role play to see, you know, how does that feel? Because that's something that I advise my fundraising contacts to say. But I also feel like, that's good, but it is a, it's a sort of a script too. But I feel like it's gentle enough that it's authentic. Oh, yeah, I like that script. Like, I
0: mean, I didn't even think of it as a script. I thought, okay, so tell me more. Oh, so okay. you bit? That's good. Yeah, I'm interested. But are you talking about an organization that talks about women's reproductive health? Or are you talking about a social justice organization? Are you talking about an environmental organization? Like, what's the organization?
1: Well... Yeah, I guess I would say, you know, I'm coming from the perspective of modeling what it looks like to be a board member with an organization. I can play with an organization that I love dearly, and that is build.org. And they are committed to social justice, as well as they teach kids how to become the CEO of their own life by teaching them entrepreneurial skills in high school. So four-year program, and then they help them launch into life, whether it's their college or a going straight into a career or anything in between there. The concept is that if we can get folks to young kids, underserved kids in high school to understand what value they have, their creative spark, their ability to wear different hats in different environments, then they'll be set up for life to have a much more confidence and ability to navigate it. So that's an organization that I happen to sit on the board of. And I guess my question would be then, if you knew that, and I said, we were not talking for the first time that you were a contact of mine, a friend of mine. And I said, Hey, you know, I sit on the board at Build. I love what they're doing. And they're working on a new project. Would you mind sitting down with me and listening to what they're doing? And then tell me if that's of interest to you
0: yeah, you know, because I like you and I know you, I would say yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. What if you didn't know me?
0: Then I'd be much more focused on kind of what the organization is all about. And I do think that sounds like a great
1: organization. They are great.
0: So I might say,
1: yeah, let's let's have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Along those lines, what I'm starting to pick up is that you've got your philanthropic priorities outlined. You've got a DAF, you and your husband are very strategic about what you're passionate about and what seems to be game-changing for you in terms of where you invest philanthropically. So what is your take on small organizations in this environment now? Like, is there a space for small organizations that hope to scale and hope to be game-changers, but they're not there yet? Where is their place in the market in these days where there are tons of nonprofits? Oh,
0: I wish I had the answer to that. I really don't know. I just think if an organization, if there's a real need out there, and there's a person who has a, a real passion, I think go for it. I mean, follow your passion and do what you can to serve. Them. I mean, start small. I mean, that's how a lot of organizations start. It's small, so. I would encourage whoever is thinking about starting that organization to make sure they have enough money in the bank for a couple months, but (laughs) go for it, right?
1: Yeah. And do what you think is right. So you're a passion first person.
0: Definitely. I mean, I think, and and when I think of giving, it really is about expression. It's about values. It's about what you care about. And passion kind of comes up for me there too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think so too. My mom always jokes that I'm in the industry I should be in because when I was younger, I had this aha moment where I was at the mall shopping for a gift for a friend. And I was so excited about what I was gonna give her. And I said, it really is better to give than receive. And my mom was like, Oh, you're so precious. You know, (laughs) it was one of those moments. But I like how you said that too. Like giving can be so fulfilling. And I think that it just sparks so much joy to be able to share. So I love that that's what you shared as well. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So speaking of sharing, I'm also drawn to get real about writing a book and all that you're doing. You've written We Need to Talk and you're going on a tour talking about money that's (laughs) taboo and hard. And my perspective, I'm a new podcaster. I started during COVID. I had the time and I love talking to people. But I tell you what, for like the first week, I was in just a crazy I was in a a different mentality because I felt so vulnerable so exposed I also felt excited and courageous but it was basically the entire rainbow of emotions I feel like they pass through me at any microsecond I'm curious like from one human to the next who's putting herself out there what's it like to talk about something that's deeply personal and taboo in order to be a change agent And, you know, I'm sure you're getting all sorts of questions coming at you. And how does it feel? Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, your feelings, because it's mine are very similar, (laughs) especially after, you know, I spent 14 years writing this book. Wow. So I spent a lot of time grappling with issues, thinking things through, figuring out how to write. I mean, I didn't, I really basically taught myself to write. I saw it as a puzzle. How was I going to? share my experiences in a way that were compelling? How was I going to talk about money in a way that wasn't off-putting or offensive?
1: Yeah. So it
0: was a lot to work with. And I spent a lot of time up by myself. I loved the process. I really enjoyed it. And then I thought, okay, wow the book is going to actually be out in the world, I have to be completely different. I mean, now I have to be out there talking to people and yeah. Yeah, expressing myself verbally. I was thought, you know, I, it, I need the time to figure out what I want to say because I need it to write it and write it again and write it again. And now I have to say it's been almost four weeks that the book has been out and I have this new set energy. It's like, wow, I can also find my voice with my voice. And the more I talk about it, the more I feel confident in the message I want to deliver. And, you know, I'm talking about wealth. You know, we don't talk about money, but we certainly don't talk about it when we have a lot of it. And believe it or not, it's not like suddenly everyone around me was talking about money. I mean, I didn't find myself in a big, sparkly private club, everyone hanging out and sharing financial secrets. I felt alone. Yeah, And suddenly I was upset because my friend was resentful. And how was I going to raise kids that weren't spoiled and entitled? And what should I do about giving to family members? And how do I approach philanthropy? No one discusses these questions, even though, like me, most are new to wealth. Eight out of ten people with wealth grew up middle class or poor.
1: It's incredible.
0: And we're not talking to each
1: other. We're not talking about the change. That's a massive change.
0: It's a huge change. And anything else in my life, I would talk with friends. Like, what do you think? What are you doing? What's your experience? But when it comes to money-related issues, we don't talk to each other. And so wealth is isolating. I'm sharing my story now to help other people understand their own. And I'm just offering up this story that includes things like how challenging it can be to navigate another vacation with a family that doesn't share your resources, or how upsetting it is to feel a friend's jealousy and not be able to share what's really going on in your life, or how upsetting it is when you feel as though your parents disapprove of what you have. Mm. I want to validate these experiences and demystify wealth and help us see that we're all a lot more alike than different.
1: I love that. I feel what you're saying and that it was a lonely and isolating time. There, there have been times like that. And I have to just commend your courage to say, okay, so what am I gonna do about it? I'm gonna break through that and I'm gonna expose it. You can't use it against me. I'm not gonna hold it against me either. I'm just gonna expose it and connect. And I just think that is like, that's a really hard thing to do. And I commend your courage and I feel a response to that physically because I I just really admire that. Thank it's, you. It's gotta be really I mean, it's isolating too to then be an author <laughs> and have your bold it claims is- and statements. Have you found that people have risen to the invitation now that you've said, let's talk? And have people come and Hugged you, embraced you. Yes. Even virtually. I'll give you a virtual hug. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. In part it's the book is for anyone who has more money than they had growing up, or anyone who has more money than others in their extended family. But it's really for anyone because we do have these money issues that we don't discuss. And I'm hoping that on an individual level, I mean we don't talk about money with our partners, with our, you know, our siblings, our parents. So really I'm hoping to help us connect and learn from each other. And then, and this may sound far-reaching, I mean, there's so much suffering right now in our country, right? People going without health care, without housing, without food. There's an education crisis. And I really think that talking about these issues can help us fight income inequality. Because our silence... Keeps the status quo in place when we're silent we're not examining our relationship with money we're not we can stay in our bubble and be unaware and not hold ourselves accountable and when there is this population of people who aren't talking to each other, who are isolated and estranged, they're probably not at their most generous or empathetic
1: definitely
0: and you ask are people you know coming out and I've gotten some really wonderful notes from people saying, thank you so much for writing this book. And one of the recent notes I've gotten was a woman saying, yeah, I feel like all these strange issues between friends who I've been friends with for a long time. And it's making me more cautious, less generous and less open when you feel this. So that's a reason to start a conversation for us to really stand up and understand what our privilege and our responsibility and talk to each other. Because I think just as you talk more about philanthropy, you you tend to give more. I think that's a key piece of why we should all be talking more.
1: Yeah. I liked in the book, you Talked about how you had a peer that started on the exact same day as you and did the exact same job as you. He happened to be a male and he happened to sign his contract prior to you. So he had almost double the stock options that you had. And I really appreciated that story of, well, what do I do with that information? First of all, I feel hot and red in the face and I don't want to know this and I don't want to talk about it. But then you felt compelled to talk to your manager about it. And I want to sidebar to just say that I had a colleague who came to me a few years ago and I'll I'll never forget where I was sitting or what the moment felt like when she came to me and said, you know, I want to talk about your salary and I want to talk about my salary. And I have read an article about women talking about salaries and how it will actually help us to advocate for ourselves and change that income inequality gap. And I felt extremely put on the spot and I, Didn't feel comfortable with it, but her argument was so strong and compelling that I came around to it. And so I want to commend her for for doing that. And I want to commend you for doing that. And I'm wondering, what do you recommend that women do or just others do at this time to figure out, like, how do we shape the income inequality gap? And that definitely goes for different races as well. I was talking to somebody from the Gates Foundation just this morning who said they're doing a side by side comparison. Of two men who both go to Harvard, and they're the exact same age, and they look very, very similar. They call them twins on paper. But then what's their long term, their trajectory for their earning, you know, first job out of college, and then second job and third job? And what's their earning potential? So yeah, I guess it's a a little bit of like, I want to echo what you're saying about philanthropy. But I also want to ask you, like, what do we need to be doing in terms of the income gap and the like helping everybody to rise, all boats to rise as opposed to like one or the other.
0: Yeah. It's it's really deep because I think you know, I, I've seen research that says that in our families, we are talking more to our sons about money and budgeting than we're talking to our daughters. The, the kind of the gender roles are so deep in us. And and as women, yeah, we're not supposed to talk about money. And yeah, we need to get over it. And it's hard. It's not easy. It really isn't. I I interviewed actually one of the women I interviewed in my book said she worked in finance. And she would hear the men kind of bragging about their bonuses and comparing notes. and And she's like, how are we supposed to know if we're making the same amount of money if we're not talking about it? And just like you said, like, we do need to talk about it. And again, I think it's one of those places where I think we have to get uncomfortable we need to rise up, we need to support each other. I think maybe that's a key, so it was great to hear that your coworker kind of asked you right, like as two women, we need to be talking about this. I think that's important,
1: yeah, whatever ended up happening with that scenario for you, did they end up giving you more stock?
0: Nope, 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 that was just kind of the way it was i mean it was it was all so much luck, right, even the fact that I had stock options was incredibly lucky right and so he had signed his agreement to start work earlier than me and so he just had more than I did and you know that also is another lesson it's like you know there's always going to be more and there's always going to be less there's you don't look around and just focus on yourself so for in that case where there really was just a matter of luck for both of us I just had to think okay I'm already so lucky and just count my own blessings <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, what I'm getting out of this is like, let's just be a little bit more courageous. The game's not even, life's not fair, but let's just start looking at that and calling it what it is so that we can move forward. Yeah, I think the more we can speak up, the better, right? Yeah.
0: And admit it. I mean, maybe it's like, it's you know, before you speak up, say, look, this is awkward and then say it. I mean, because it is until we kind of learn how to hear it and respond to it and start conversations we kept let's just muddle around and in the name of equality and the name of kind of connecting and and I mean right now when our society is so divided let's connect and try and find those points of commonality let's learn from each other
1: yeah in talking about money and talking about philanthropy do you ever worry that you're just going to have your door counted down with a bunch of solicitations? And how will you manage all the people who now know that you're a philanthropist who is active?
0: I don't really worry about that. I mean, I don't like to say no. (laughs) That's not comfortable, but I can. And I think you have to. In fact, I think often it's the nicest thing to do is to say no up
1: front. Yeah. Not waste somebody's time.
0: My husband has a nonprofit and he will spend hours preparing for meetings and and talking to people and updating them and just to, you know, months later have them say, "Oh, sorry, we're just not going to do it this year or whatever." And he's like, "Wow, I wish you'd said no 6 months ago so I could have, you know, done something else with my time and energy." So, I think being able to say no is really important and it's not something I worry about.
1: So, I've got friends and clients who our high net wealth and they've started their own nonprofits. And they said, Well, how could I ask for money when everybody knows that I have money? And why shouldn't I just be funding this myself? So, what is your husband and what do you say about that kind of question?
0: No, I think that's a, a fair, I feel that sometimes myself and for him, but he doesn't feel that at all. And he's kind of taught me, Yeah, that's a, it's like a bit, his, he has his business, it's like a business. And the proof of concept, at first, okay, so he didn't pay himself a salary for four years doing this. And he also, we didn't donate to it either. He wanted to make it successful, make sure that it was having an impact, that it was reaching people, that it was it was working. So he ran it like he didn't have the money to give it. He didn't take any money from it, but he definitely, you know, did that up front. And then as he was reaching more people and he saw the success, then we started to give to it. And we give to World Reader the way we give to other nonprofits. It really is our primary focus. But when COVID hit, I had that feeling like, well, why don't we just kind of bolster everyone's salary? Because he decided, you know, we have to. We're not getting the funding we need. we need to cut everyone down to eighty percent, and I had that feeling like, "Oh, what should we do?" And he's like, "No, you know, we're running this. I want to run it the way it's supposed to be run for its sake interesting because at some point I mean he wants to have a success so that someone can come in when he's ready to step away, and he's been doing it for ten years he he's still as enthusiastic and a hundred percent as ever, but there's going to be a day when he hopes that it doesn't Go away because he's ready to kind of do something different or we get someone else on board so i think it's it's kind of that business mindset of like making sure that the business is running and and you're you're a separate entity as as a couple
1: yeah, that's an interesting take. And I do appreciate that. I think that it's important that you're not seen as like an enabler. Or, you know, I don't know what a better term would be than this crass one, but like a daddy warbucks. And so everybody's like, oh, don't worry about it. They'll just cover it. So I think it is important to flex the muscle and build the muscle of figuring out the ecosystem of fundraising or even revenue generation from nonprofits. That, that's important now too.
0: Yeah, it's that boundary between the nonprofit and us. So it's it's not only healthy for the nonprofit, it's also healthy for us. We don't want to be constantly like, you know, involved. Like there's got to be a line between us as a couple and the nonprofit.
1: So it has its own integrity. For our own sanity too. Yeah, for your ins- yeah. for your I almost said insanity, but for your sanity, <laughs> and so it's, it doesn't just feel like a pet project, but it feels like it's a truly unique, stable, and grounded and validated organization. I appreciate that. It sounds too like that's a legacy, you know, that you're trying to build a legacy of like this is what we're doing in our time. Is that true to say? And if not, why not? And if so, you know, what does legacy mean to you?
0: But it, yeah, legacy has. A, I don't know if I love the.
1: Loaded, huh too much
0: it's yeah exactly you know the other term <laughs> the other term you know I don't actually like is philanthropist oh really yeah I, I have a hard time with that one because I think it's I mean it's so much more than because I think for me when I hear philanthropist I hear like I just see someone who is, who's really wealthy and they're just writing checks and that's all they're focused on it's like so much more than that it's like I think you have to be an activist and passionate and smart and strategic. And you have to bring your whole self there. It's sort of like, it's not just treasure, it's time and talent, right? It's talent and time. And it's not just ready. but that's just maybe semantics. And the semantics around legacy feels a little bit the same way. I mean, I think David is building an incredible, he has 15 million people reading in his program and he's, you know, has 80 employees throughout the world. He's in Kenya and, and Ghana. He's working with Syrian refugees in Jordan. He's in India. And now with the education crisis here in the United States, World Readers is going to come to the United States and offer programs to keep kids learning. So right now it's all about, there's so much need right now. And, you know, if you're a reader, first of all, like, and he's works with local authors. So kids are reading about themselves in Kenya. They're reading about themselves in Ghana. And so if first reading is like a mirror and then it becomes a window to the world, how do you prosper if you're not learning and reading? So it's really trying to build a world of readers who can build prosperous lives. So right now, I think that he's doing that and he's succeeding in that. And as far as legacy, I hope that continues. I hope he reaches more and more people and people can, you know, learn about themselves and each other through
1: reading. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I love that there's that integration to the natural habitat, the culture, the community, even just names or images or locations that one might recognize. So it does feel connected. That's very important. So you kind of dodged my question about legacy. So at the end, are you saying you just, you don't like that word? Like do you ascribe to the concept of wanting to leave an impression on the world when you pass?
0: Yeah, I want to have an impact. I feel very strongly about talking about this issue around <laughs> of money and wealth. And my husband wants to have an impact on millions of kids who don't have access to books, but now do because of his program. So, yeah, I mean, I think don't we all want to leave a legacy, whether it's, you know, raising two great kids or helping a friend or being a supportive spouse or doing your best at, at your job. I mean, I think we all want to have a legacy that that you know, people look back and think, "Wow, that person made a difference in
1: my life." Yeah, I agree with that totally. That's cool. Um, and I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. I was just sort of laughing about semantics, but I wanted to hear sort of that passion come through. So, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, just a couple questions I ask at the end of most conversations is just to understand like What brings you hope and what inspires you? You said, mentioned passion before. And I think what inspires me is
0: seeing people follow their passion. I don't care what it is. I love seeing someone who's really excited about their job. I don't care what it is. And I'm always saying, oh, that person, look at them. They're like so into this job or whatever it is. I just love seeing that when someone is like really in, so lost in what they're doing that they're just one with it. I
1: love that. That flow state, the aliveness. I feel like you can see a sparkle in somebody's eyes and you're like, oh, they are on their path. Keep going. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Jen, I want to ask you if there's one thing that you want to shine light on then I invite you to do that now. But before you do, I'm going to buy you a moment to think. And I want to shine light on you and David. And I definitely want to shine light on We Need to Talk. I think it's a beautiful book. I loved reading it. I loved actually, in particular, the story of how you two met and then when there was a little bit of distance and then how you reconnected. So I'll sort of leave that as like a hook for anybody who's listening, that there's a fun little romance story in there, as well as just a lot of life lessons and advice and very compelling questions that you can ask for yourself. So it's like a good book club book. So I'm so happy to promote that and you. And is there anything that you would shine light on in addition to the book? Oh, thank
0: you. Yeah. I, I, let me just build on that because I do see it as a great book club book because it's, it's a good place to start a conversation, but you could read it with your parents. Yeah. Read it with a friend or your spouse. I'm really wanting to shine a light on the conversations that we aren't having, like open this, this conversation to talking to each other where we're not talking. And it's, it's such an opportunity we're missing out on because it keeps us a little bit distant and it doesn't allow us to learn from each other, to collaborate. And ultimately, what really makes us happy in the end, it's our connections with each other it's those relationships and the quality of our relationships that is really where where happiness
1: exists. Yeah. I love that. I couldn't agree more. And that's what creating community for good is all about. Let's have these conversations and let's figure out how to connect a little closer, a little deeper, more meaningfully. Yeah.
0: Thank you for doing what you're doing. This is really fun.
1: Thank you. It is such a passion project. I mean, it's just, it's really fun for me. I feel so honored and privileged that I had a chance to speak with you. And I appreciate that you took the time. I know you're doing a lot, but I love that we can share your voice with my community. And I appreciate you and David and all the work that your family does for the betterment of everybody.
0: Oh, thank you. Thanks for reaching out and for the conversation and for doing what you're doing. Thanks. It's great. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Creating Community for Good podcast. If you like what you heard, let me know. Send me a message on LinkedIn or write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If you're curious about a topic or you'd like to be a guest, let's connect. Go to www.creatingcommunityforgood.com. In there, you will see all of the podcast episodes with beautifully written show notes and hyperlinks to everything that we've discussed. Thank you and shine on. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.